This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. For Military Podcast. Brent, I'm so glad that you are able to take time out of your busy schedule and join us here on the Mentors for Military Podcast. And of course, um, you know, Scott's on with me, and we're looking forward to a really good show here on leadership. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. So I recently watched a video that you had put out and it really, you know, like captivated me. And there was a whole bunch of stuff. And I sent you some notes that we can talk about. But just so you know, you're only probably about the fifth or sixth seal that we've had on the podcast. I, I guess the rest of them are really busy with their book writing and movies or something of that nature. <laughs> we, we just haven't been able to book very many of them on the show. Well, you know, we're busy doing our sit-ups and doing our hair and uh, <laughs> practicing the fine art of acting, writing, and self-promotion. So it's, it's right. a busy schedule. <laughs> totally. Oh, so I want to start at the very beginning, because within this video that I watched about you and your background, you know, I think it was actually um, you presenting in front of a, a corporate group, you had shared the story about you entering into the, the Navy, and uh, your path to becoming a Navy SEAL. And so I thought that might be a great start, because not very many people enter from corporate America, having gone out of college, then, you know, going into the corporate side, and then have a desire to change that path and go within the military. So kind of take us through that very beginning. Uh, sure. Just as a quick bit of background, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, uh, and did my undergraduate education at Southern Methodist University there in Dallas. And my father had been a, a Marine during the Vietnam era uh, and uh, had didn't have to do a, a combat deployment, uh, thankfully. But uh, I only mention that because uh, he, did, he never imposed the idea of going into the military on uh, my twin brother or on me. So it wasn't really in the forefront of my mind. Obviously, I'd always grown up fascinated with the military and the history and, and the mindset. My dad's a big World War II buff historian as a, as a hobby. And so I journeyed through SMU. I graduated with, with degrees in finance and economics and took a job as a financial analyst with a global real estate uh, investment and development company called Trammell Crow. Now, during that time, interestingly, I did have a, a college buddy of mine who was one of these young men who has had a lifelong dream and passion to one day graduate and join the Navy and hopefully be accepted into the notorious SEAL trading pipeline. Uh, and while I thought that was quite admirable, I deemed it to be somewhat of an unrealistic career path, <laughs> knowing the, uh, just mathematically speaking, knowing the attrition rate and the rigors of the job. Uh, I had read a couple books about the history of the SEAL teams in Vietnam and from our forefathers from uh, the underwater demolition teams in World War II, obviously fascinated with the history and the culture, but had never 
uh, thought of that as a career path for myself. But while I was working out in corporate America and he was a senior, uh, he started training uh, even harder. So we started training together. Uh, for me, it was just a way to stay fit and yeah. uh, help help a friend prepare for his arduous journey. So we started distance running, distance swimming, uh, not too much strength training, but very focused on the calisthenics associated with the CLPT entrance test. Yeah. So a lot of push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, other types of cross-functional training. And during that time, obviously, we were having a lot of dialogue about this journey ahead and the excitement he had for it and the trepidation and a little bit of fear uh, because of the uncertainty of the outcome. And I started reading a few more books and the growing fascination and uh, the hard workouts and all that excitement I had for him, coupled with the boring nature of my entry level financial analyst position, led to the culmination of me deciding to quit my job. Uh, much to my parents' dismay, and uh, enlist in the Navy with him. Now, obviously, having done undergrad before, we could have uh, gone the officer route. We actually had officer packages put together, uh, planning to attend officer candidacy school or OCS prior to uh, joining. And ultimately, we made the decision to enlist instead, which for many, uh, and now even more so, is a strategic move. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a class, let's say for easy math, that starts with 200 students, there's only a a handful that go to officers. Now, half of those come from the Naval Academy and the other half come from people like myself who would have gone to officer candidacy school after going to college or undergrad. Right. And so we now have the data shows we have about 70 to 75 percent of our enlisted SEALs have at least some college, if not their full undergrad degree. Uh, and many doing the same thing. They decide, well, they can become an officer later if it so if it so suits them. Yeah. Uh, but for the time being, it's more of a strategic move uh, to further your chances, statistically speaking, of uh, successfully navigating the program or being assigned to a class a lot faster than you normally would as an officer. Yeah, and it's probably longevity as well. I mean, I'm assuming it's very similar to the Army Special Forces, whereas an officer, you end up doing a lot of just command time outside uh, or in various different levels. So you're not always with an ODA and a team. Correct. Correct. And that's why you see a lot of and several of my buddies who did the same thing, went to undergrad and then came in, even in my own uh, buds class and in my first platoon, uh, are now officers. They've been in for a long time, but they've had the benefit of having multiple you know, combat deployments and platoon cycles uh, as an enlisted operator. And then you kind of start fresh when you go to OCS and you become a new ensign. You're still uh, doing workups and deployments with, uh, with a platoon and a troop. Uh, you know, within that uh, similar pipeline. So you get the benefit of um, longer opportunities to operate as opposed to moving into more operational roles, strategic roles, training roles, and whatnot. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that your parents weren't too happy with this, but uh, this decision. <laughs> but I understand your brother also. Your, and I didn't know that he was a twin. So your twin brother actually is <laughs> one of the ones that came forward and said, you know, something to the effect of, are you crazy? Yeah, well, a lot of people said that. Uh, my parents... <laughs> My parents, I would say, were shocked because I had never really talked about it with them. Yeah. And, and, and then once they realized I was serious and had a passion for doing this and was going to go all in and follow it through with it, uh, they were cautiously optimistic and you know, as supportive of, as parents can be when their son or daughter chooses to do something they deem relatively dangerous. Uh, but yeah, there was, I don't remember the exact conversation, but certainly I had multiple conversations with my twin about... Uh, you know about this path. He's like, Brett. He's like, what are you, what are you thinking, man? He's like, you have asthma, you have allergies, you can't see shit. Your eyesight's terrible. <laughs> so, what are you gonna do about all that stuff? Yeah, it doesn't seem like the appropriate path for you to take. Uh, spreadsheets and pivot tables may be a little bit more uh, suitable for you know the 
nerdy asthmatic uh, who was in the jazz band in high school. But um, <laughs> that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this was me lashing out trying to find the the man deep inside, but but no. In all seriousness, it uh, I have many friends and colleagues from the teams who obviously when they set their sight on this goal, there's obviously there's people in your life who are going to push you forward, and there's people in your life who are going to um, you know somewhat stand in the way of that. And I'm not saying my brother was obviously we're we're twins, we're brothers, so of course he's going to razz me. I would have expected nothing less, and it only furthered you know the fuel for my journey ahead and but at the same time when if you think about any time we're trying to pursue any lofty goal in life personal professional business family oftentimes we have to make radical changes in our life uh, to prioritize the activities that are going to get us to that goal and deprioritize or eliminate everything that possibly stands in your way including the people that might stand in your way. So I changed my social life, my dietary habits, my workout regimen, uh, training schedule. I obviously left the office a lot earlier than I probably should have as a new guy. (laughs) I wasn't exactly the definition of an engaged employee uh, during that first job. And uh, when I told them uh, that I was leaving to join the Navy, they also then in that same interview told me that I was uh, not gonna be getting my year end bonus. (laughs) Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Yeah. They obviously didn't see how much of a valuable employee you really were, Brent. <laughs> so uh, was it your buddy then that you ended up going and enlisting with that you also trained with? Um, you know, I, I think I heard something about like in the Colorado mountains or something through ele- high elevations. Yes. So we trained in Dallas for about a year, uh, both during his senior year and when I was working. And then uh, for a few months after that, then we when, once I made the final decision that I was leaving my job and we were going to go all in training together prior to to joining to get a few more months in of, of hardcore um, fitness. Uh, so we moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado. Uh, oh, okay. I don't know if you've been there, but uh, no. small town, small town high in the mountains, uh, pretty secluded. We'd grown up going there uh, with my family. Uh, and so I was obviously well um, uh, versed with the uh, the nature of that territory and the, the training opportunity that provided, especially it being at a higher altitude than a lot of other uh, notable places in Colorado. So we were training on average at about 11,000 feet for seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day, uh, doing everything we could possibly do to mentally and physically punish ourselves because the mindset was that, you know, we talk a lot about in the SEAL teams of staying in your three-foot world and focusing on what's in your immediate control and sphere of influence and really deprioritizing everything else. I mean, that's the same in life and business and achieving uh, yep. any goal. But uh, the factor here was, and I tell the guys that I mentor now into and through the program, when it comes to preparedness, Focus on what you can control. There's so many elements that when you go through SEAL training or any arduous journey like that, that are out of your control, uh, that'll suck a lot of time and energy away from you when you're dwelling on those things that you can't do anything about. So fitness was the one thing that was 100% in our control. So I said, let's leave fitness. The last thing that I need to worry about, I'll worry about every other thing, (laughs) the stress, the anxiety, the fear of failure, the academics, uh, all the rigors that are combined within the typical day in SEAL training. Uh, Fitness should be the last thing that you worry about because you have total control over your preparedness. And obviously injury and things like that you can't avoid, but the better and more intelligently you train, you can prepare your body uh, to, you know, for the less likelihood that you'll get overuse injuries and stress fractures and yeah. IT, IT band problems. So. Yeah, absolutely. So all of a sudden you find yourself at Buds. Did you see that the training helped while you were there or no? 
<laughs> physically, physically, the training uh, helped. We were, um, you know, as well prepared as a, as a runner, and I'd been a competitive swimmer growing up and in high school. So it's really because every all students going through the program have their different challenges, whether it be on the academic side or they have troubles with the obstacle course, or maybe they're a stronger runner than they are a swimmer. There's usually one or two things that they really have to focus on uh, so that they don't get performance dropped and they can continue to pass the, t the, the necessary times for the runs, the swims, the obstacle course and other evolutions like that. And those times get more competitive throughout the program as mm -hmm. you go through the first, first six months, which is called buds or basic underwater demolition. Um, for me, it was really, it wasn't one particular evolution. It's just the, the all encompassing uh, stress of the program in general, because like many, I had given up a lot to pursue that path of service and, and sacrifice. Uh, it had a little bit of a different meaning because this was right before 9-11. So selfishly, this was more of a, a personal journey and a, uh, a test of mindset, body and spirit to see if I could do this and check the box and it'd be a fantastic resume builder and I would have served my country and get a good job later on. Right, right. Uh, wrote a book, well then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course, write the book, you know, maybe star in some reality shows, things like that. <laughs> the obvious transition that all SEALs take. Uh, uh, I see what you're doing here. I see what yes, you're doing. yes, yes, that's uh, okay. I'm trying to throw you off. But, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but uh, 9-11 was a couple days right before my class transitioned to advanced training, which is SQT, or SEAL mm -hmm. qualification training. That's when we obviously saw uh, an immediate and ongoing uh, transformation, you know, of mindset of culture of our, even our operating models in Naval Special Warfare in this sort of pre 9-11 world we live in now. So, so when you were in the tr training, Oh, go ahead, Scott, you were going to say something. I cut you off. Yeah. I, th I think it's really interesting, Brent, that you went and, and trained at altitude pre um, buds. Is, is there any kind of studies being done on, people who train at altitude in in terms of um muscle fatigue injuries and, and things like that and how that kind of pre-build-up can prevent those type of things i i, I think that's really interesting it, it it's definitely shown uh, and, and proven why a lot of athletes do it as well it, it's mm. obviously proves proves to uh strengthen uh you know your lungs your bodies the way your body processes uh, amino acids and things like that that build up when you're uh, doing any type of extended physical activity. Uh, and the way we trained, we did a lot of research, and but there's so many more resources these guys have now uh, as far as yeah. formal mentorship programs and trainers and, and guys who actually either do it for free like me or some guys who actually build a business around it and uh, have, or at least a side business of some type that can provide a lot of really good tips on, you know, health, wellness, diet, things like that. We were more of the make yourself puke every day type of mentality than, uh, any type of <laughs> fancy science behind it. <laughs> um, that's the effort though, isn't it? You know, putting in the effort and in the old days and I'm kind of the same year as you, I joined up in 96 and you, you had to just go out and put the effort in. And like you said, that normally meant just running up the biggest hill you could find until you was uh, throwing up at the top and then jogging yourself back down and going again. And, you know, whilst these days there's a lot of um, advancements and shortcuts or hacks to be able to Im improve your lung capacity, VO2 max and, and all those different things, in in, in our generation, it, you literally have to just get out and... <laughs> hit the road and go as hard and as fast as, as you could. 
Well, we got to have a lot more resources for the millennials and these younger generations who <laughs> we got to hold their hand up that mountain and make sure that they maintain the mental fortitude and the vision on the ultimate goal while they don't feel safe. And no, kidding. Um, <laughs> no but it, it was it's kind of old school. We didn't have the resources, so it was get out there and, and gut it out. And the, there are direct correlations, as you guys know, between physical training and mental fortitude. So we figured that the f harder we pushed our bodies in an intelligent way, so as not to get injured, but the harder we pushed our bodies, the harder we trained, uh, the greater mental toughness and resilience you build uh, because you're pushing through that pain and you're expanding those boundaries of your comfort zone, uh, which is a necessary evil uh, just to get through the first month of BUDS. Yeah. And this is at the time frame that you were also taught the rule of seven. So explain that to us. Uh, the rule of seven is similar to, you guys probably know my Bud's classmate and uh, former teammate, David Goggins. He has, he calls it the 40% rule and there's the rule of seven. Uh, essentially the rule of seven in its simplest explanation is when, and this kind of goes back to what we're talking about is, you know, is it mental? Is it physical? What's the connectivity between mind and body? And when your brain is sending signals <laughs> of severe suffering and misery and depression uh, to say, stop doing what you're doing, uh, this hurts, you can go no further, you're really only about one-seventh of the way there. Um, and David's, David's philosophy is he calls it the 40% rule. You're only 40% of the way there, meaning when we are getting those signals, whether it's a physical activity or you're running or you know a distance swim and you feel like you can't push yourself any further, that's your own body's uh, defense mechanism to prevent uh, injury or death. <laughs> and so learning how to, you, you know, you got to kind of eat the elephant one bite at a time in this regard, learning how to push past that, uh, that mental barrier a little bit each time, uh, you're going to, again, like I said before, you keep expanding those boundaries of your comfort zone. So that two-mile ocean swim that you have to do in a certain amount of time, the first couple weeks in buds seems so daunting. And then there's the buds fairy dust sprinkled on everything. So everything sucks. Like I love ocean swimming now. I hated it in seal training, yeah. <laughs> but it's cause I, it's cause someone's telling you to do it and they're mm -hmm. telling you to do it in a specific time, regardless of the current, blah, 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 blah. And so those things then become normal. And then you move the goalposts and set a loftier goal and you do it again and again and again, <laughs> evolution after evolution. And, you know, our focus, you know, in the training portion was kind of going back to that, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time is if you tried to wrap your mind around all of the daunting past fail evolutions you have and the pain and suffering you'll you'll experience not just going through the training but advanced training and then life as a seal is in many ways more difficult um you got to think about you get up at four o'clock in the morning and just pass the run and make it to breakfast yeah then go to the pool pass that evolution make it to lunch just yep. little increments one bite at a time make it to dinner make it to bed don't worry about tomorrow until tomorrow morning. Be prepared. Be prepared for tomorrow, but don't don't dwell on on the horrors that come tomorrow right now because there's nothing you can do about it. It's so interesting because uh, we've had you know of course some of our co-hosts are uh, come from the soft community and then of course uh, we've had many guests that came from the same space and so um, a lot of them or a few of them have said the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, one remarked here lately that um, he he would always say, well you know with his I think it was a ranger buddy or something like that. We'll quit after lunch. And then after lunch came, but you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll quit after dinner, you know, I like that. And, and then it was, you know, breakfast. And he said, that's what got us through is we just kept, you know, joking yeah. about it in a way, but also setting maybe a milestone of when we would give up, but yet we wouldn't give up. We just keep pushing yeah. through. And, uh, and, and you, you take that mindset within to you in your transition and your personal life and business and yeah, hopefully, yeah. Uh, and family and any type of, 
situation where life is throwing you those inevitable obstacles or the stress or the challenges that that come with achieving different types of professional goals you know i if i take away one one thing from that experience of both training and then combat of course is is anxiety and stress management uh, mm-hmm. you can compartmental compartmentalize things in a much uh, more appropriate manner and uh, not dwelling on the elements of something that are out of your control or a stressful meeting that you have tomorrow or a board meeting where you know you're going to get yelled at about the financials. Don't worry about it until you're at the board meeting. Go prepared, but don't worry about it tonight. <laughs> worry about it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and then ne- next thing you know, it'll be over and you'll be on to the next stressful thing. <laughs> well, you know, the, if the training wasn't realistic, then it wouldn't do any of us any good. So, I mean, a lot of people fail to, to think about or forget that during the training cycle, there are many people that actually end up dying through the, the training pipeline. We always forget that, you know, I think it wasn't, but a few weeks ago, somebody passed away through airborne school, I think it was, or some other type of training. And, and we never think about those things. We always think that it's combat related. That's when it's going to happen. Right. Right. And, and you had a very similar experience while you were going through the pipeline. Uh, we did, uh, my class was Bud's class 235, um, notably the last hard class, but yeah, so. <laughs> training got, training got easier after that. Um, we had a, a unique experience in that. And I say unique, it was a wildly unfortunate experience, but, uh, it, it's not that common that regardless of how rigorous SEAL training is that, that it's not that common that people pass away during the training. Yeah. It's happened. I can think of several times in the past 10 years, uh, which, obviously seems obvious based on how dangerous the training is and to your point how dangerous we have to make it so that when you get in that first gunfight or that first land warfare uh, experience that you know what to do and it's muscle memory and fear fear is mitigated because you just fall right into back on your training you know we say you're not you don't nobody rises to the occasion you fall back to the level of training preparedness that you have. Yep. Uh, so our class leader, the class leader in a BUDS class is uh, going to be the highest ranking naval officer. So he had been an intel officer at SEAL Team 1, not as a SEAL, but as an intel officer. And then, so he'd been in the community, well-respected, great guy, great leader, and uh, a lot of good connections. And he was accepted into the program, landed in our class, 235, a guy named Lieutenant John Scopp. He's, um, I'll get to that in a minute, but uh, we we were in Hell Week, um, and I remember distinctly, and I write about this in my first book and touch on it in the new book coming out. I remember so distinctly, uh, you know, the, that Sunday. So Hell Week starts on a Sunday when you have breakouts. So you'll, your class will report to the classroom, uh, usually sometime early mid-morning, just a few required items in your possession. And you basically wait in the classroom all day. They do this on purpose, too, because it's the stress and anxiety are eating away at your soul. You're not exactly sure when breakout's going to happen. You know it's going to be later in the day, but... They want to make sure that you're not like, okay, five more minutes. Uh, (laughs) It's it's where the torture really begins. Um, And I remember one of the things that I loved about him the most was how inspiring he was and how he took it upon himself to make sure he didn't just lead us, but motivated, inspired, and coached us through those first few weeks leading up to Hell Week. And that Sunday, one of the things he did was he read uh, read aloud the St. Crispin's Day speech from William Shakespeare's Henry V. And obviously those more famous lines of, you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, uh, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And if this were a movie, we would call this foreshadowing, because literally four days later, uh, he drowned in the pool, suffering from severe pulmonary edema, exacerbated by the extreme pneumonia that he had caught. Most people entering Hell Week, you either... Usually either, you rarely enter Hell Week 
at the top of your game. You're probably either sick, injured, or both mo- yeah. for most students. And obviously, we have med checks, I think, every three to four hours. Uh, for the last couple days prior to him passing, he'd been coughing up blood at those med checks. For whatever reason, based on the decision-making and whoever was in charge, they instead of pulling him, they asked him if he could continue on. And, of course, he said he could. And then, you know, like that, we were doing a... Uh, uh, an evolution called the Caterpillar Race in the Olympic-sized swimming pool at the Naval Amphibious Base. And next thing you know, they're pulling us out of the pool, telling us to sit along the fence, look away, do not look at the pool. And obviously we knew something something wrong was, was happening, uh, even as delirious as you are by the fourth day of Hell Week. And uh, basically they they put him in an ambulance, they tried to revive him, put him in an ambulance, and he was basically pronounced dead on scene, but they tried to revive him uh, on the way to the hospital. But uh, you know, we lost a great leader. He's now buried at Fort Rosecrans Cemetery here in San Diego uh, in Point Lomo. But uh, it was really our first entree into uh, some of the experiences we would have in the NSW community. Again, this was before 9-11. So when the commanding officer came into the classroom where we were waiting to find out what the heck was going on, he literally just walked to the straight of the room, said, gentlemen, listen up. Lieutenant Scott was pronounced dead at 2 a.m. Lieutenant Parado, you're taking over as class leader. And he basically told us to get used to it. This wouldn't be the this wouldn't be the first time. It won't be the only teammate you're going to lose. Uh, you know, just like it was another messed up day at the office and walked up. And because they secured us uh, about a day early from Hell Week, they also, to add to the misery, uh, removed our walk week. So in Buds, you run everywhere. So you run to class, you run to Chow, you run to every evolution. So you run six miles a day just getting to and from places, not counting the four-mile timed runs you do twice a week. So you're running dozens and dozens of miles every single week. So after Hell Week, they'll give you what's called a walk week, where they eliminate the the running to every you can walk to you know, class and to Chow and to your evolutions. And so because we had been secured a day early, they didn't let us have a walk week. Oh so what? Well, what that actually did was I'm not sure whose decision that was, but I think it was pretty pretty dumb. But uh, it also uh, those guys who had barely skated through Hell Week with some pretty bad injuries, like I had a fractured elbow stress fractures, but every, a lot of us just keep our mouth shut so we don't get rolled back. And that forced a good five or 10 of our classmates uh, into into a rollback situation because you, that walk week is critical uh, for healing because the Saturday and Sunday that you give, they give you off isn't really the, a long enough time to heal from hell week. So Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And you guys started off with how many in your class? I forget. I mean, it starts with a larger number. You you start during indoctrination. They're filtering people in. They're reorganizing. We had well over 200 at the beginning, and then they kind of filter that down uh, once you get to uh, once you get to first phase. And then ultimately, only 23 of the original class uh, graduated and went on to advanced training. Wow. Yeah, that just uh, shows right there the difficulty of the type of training that you guys are going through. And of course, you know, there's a there's a Instagram. Uh, pages out there that I like to follow and you know it shows these guys going through you know the 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 different buds training or just through the whole um, NSW type of training and uh, it's always fun because when when we usually when we um, hear of individuals who talk about buds what they end up focusing on is really the whole NSW training but they make it sound as though their stories is that the six months is 18 months and right. you know that it's a it's a longer pipeline, I guess, than what it really is. 
where we typically just talk about buds or what right. you see on right. like the the class before mine was class 234 and that's the class that you see in the discovery channel documentaries so oh, they okay. follow, the discovery channel followed that entire class uh from start to finish of buds now buds is just the first six months of that long pipeline yeah uh so people talk about seal training and buds well that's not the end that's just the beginning really of the real training um i always thought that was interesting i was always asking myself seeing these guys getting chased around by cameras with cameras in their face i don't know if that would be a motivator or a demotivator i do know one <laughs> thing that i wouldn't want to quit on national television no. so maybe it was a good thing i don't know yeah i wouldn't want to be the uh, guy that goes over and rings that bell not at all <laughs> with a camera in your face no um but yeah then you go into sqt with uh it, it it, they, we flex right or left based on how we change the training. Sure. You know, for a while, for a while, we were sending everybody to language school, or at least officers had at least, you know, sometimes six to nine months of full immersion language school. Or now we've tacked on free fall school into advanced training. So the pipeline yeah. has sl slowly gotten longer and longer. Yeah. Which is which is a good thing because guys guys show up ready to hit the ground running when they get to a team. Whereas back in the day, you you only had buds. Yeah. Uh, we we went through the full pipeline, but back in the old days, you just had buds. You showed up to your team having been beaten almost to death, but not really learning much. <laughs> you yeah. learned everything once you got to your team and you didn't get your trident uh, until you went through uh, uh, what they called the, uh, the board, which is a, a series of tests and the things that they teach you that now you get all in advanced training. So now you get your trident at the end of SQT. Uh, we were the first, if not one of the first classes to show up as new guys to our team with our shiny gold tridents on. And let me tell you, that didn't go over real well with the uh, old school guys who've been there for ten years. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, They're we... like, let me just go ahead and have that bird. I'll hang on to it for you <laughs> until I say that you earned it. <laughs> I remember uh, Mike Rutledge, who is a member of our co-host team, who is not only a Navy SEAL but then went on to the Army to go to one sixtieth and become a pilot there with them in the Army. Yeah. Um, talked a lot about that introduction, you know, um, to the SEAL team and you know what he went through. Yeah, yeah. It uh, my my first weapon at the team was a paintbrush. Like, hey, hey, new guys, here's what you're gonna be doing for the next month: repainting all these storage containers and mill vans. <laughs> like, I was like, this is not like in the movies or in the books that I've read at all. <laughs> right. So, how long did you end up staying within the uh, the Navy before you you separated? Yeah, I wasn't in a, in a long time. Like, not some like some of these guys who've done you know what I consider a career. Yeah. Uh, and I was in about six years and did uh, three. Through combat deployments, uh, back then my mindset and, and some similar. Uh, you know, I, I in hindsight, you always have regrets. I mean, I wish I sure. would have stayed in longer, knowing that well, I could have accomplished the things I've accomplished outside. Uh, the, but you know, I felt a, a calling to stick to to my path, to my plan. Go back to you know grad school, go to you know, you know and uh, go back into business. Um, but uh, also back then. Many of us assume that these conflicts in no way, shape, or form could possibly go on yeah. uh, as long as they have. And now I feel really guilty for getting out because <laughs> here we <laughs> you selfish son of a bitch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this, but, is, uh, this is crazy, though. I mean, the fact that it has gone on this long. Because like you said, nobody forecasted this. At least I don't think they did. No. Yeah. No, it obviously incrementally as we went on we're like okay now we're seeing that you know the there is no light at the end of the tunnel this is this could possibly go on for a long time especially as the insurgency started sure. uh, happening there in, in the iraq regions and uh the you know the typical situation in afghanistan of what are we <laughs> are we accomplishing anything here <laughs> are we not? Right. i mean the, the thing about it, i mean you know this but the thing about 
uh, in the special operations community and largely just in the military in general. You know, we're many of us aren't all that political, at least not while we're in. Um, you know, we're focused on the mission and right. we're focused on getting the good mission, and executing that mission and protecting this person and that person. And that's really it. That's all. That's your mindset. Uh, you're not thinking about oftentimes the big picture or the why, the, the deep level purpose. You wonder uh, oftentimes, especially as you know, more more of your community members, you know, start dying and things like that, which, as you know, happened and has continued to happen. We've lost many uh, operators in what is considerably a very small community, um, you know, since 9-11. But, uh, you know, I, I continue to serve. I, I've been on the executive board of the SEAL Family Foundation for, gosh, almost almost as long as I've, I've been out, so over 10 years. And uh, then I now mentor. In, it's informal, but I mentor um, guys into and through the program. I'm obviously selective in who I um, and who I work with, uh, because, you know, my time is valuable. Ahead. Yeah. The time is valuable. You want to invest the right amount of time, but you know, I've, I've mentored formally mentored, well, formally for me, uh, five guys and they're all seals, but I'm just, I can't take full. Credit. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's really, it's, I'm absolutely not taking full credit. I was just setting myself up for success by picking the right guys. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So when you made the transition, did you start right away with your own company as an entrepreneur? Or did you end up going back to corporate America and especially in finance? I'm curious. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to go to grad school as part of that transition. Yeah. So I, I started my MBA program like one week after I separated from the teams. Oh, wow. Uh, so I wanted to have no downtime because yeah. uh, I just I had seen people when they get out, they have a little too much downtime or they don't have a very set plan that's time bound and concise. Then, you know a lot of things can happen or nothing happens, which yeah. is even worse. Uh, right. Or sometimes those guys end up back at the SEAL teams yeah. <laughs> six months later. So, well, I guess I'll fall back onto you know, the original <laughs> I plan. I just, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, did that and then obviously was going to kind of explore what opportunities and doors that that path opened. Uh, grad school uh, is great for networking, especially if the school has programs designed to place people in, in career paths. Yep, uh, but then I know this is very cliche, but I met a guy in grad school and he and I were like, Hey, let's be entrepreneurs. What a great idea that is, uh, which has, you know, about the same failure rate as seal trading. So I figured <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Um, and so we started the initial concepts for our first company uh, in grad school and then formally launched it uh, when we graduated. Uh, that was a very well-timed venture. It was a, a, a home finding search engine. Uh, kind of like early Zillow or Trulia, uh, capitalizing on that growing real estate non-bubble. Oh, yeah. Before uh, that. It was the, the glory that was never going to end. We're all just going to make money and retire and sell the company in four years. Some stupid entrepreneurial vision that we all have. And, you know, then 2008, 2009, 2010 happened. Yeah. Uh, so Oops. we uh, we we learned... I learned new lessons about resilience on the civilian side, <laughs> similar to what I learned on the military side. But, uh, but we, we navigated. We went out and raised more money. Uh, we saw, obviously, the, the threats on the horizon, raised more money, started a second company as kind of an offshoot of that. It was a digital marketing and media agency. And so it could a, a, a service-based organization that could essentially serve any type of client as opposed to being tied to the cyclical nature of real estate or energy or something like that where we see more massive fluctuations. So. so tell tell us a little bit about uh, Taking Point Leadership, because I want to get into the leadership, some yeah. of the things that you talk about in terms of theory and understanding and such. So uh, how did that all begin? That really began as, uh, so I 
I uh, sold that second company in uh, late 2016. Uh, and the what I had found in those first two companies is not necessarily a passion for those industries per se, but a passion for building organizations, building teams, uh, defining and managing culture, integrating values, and trying to figure out through a lot of you know mistakes and, and shortcomings as well as how do we measure behavior, culture, values, and guiding principles to align those to achieve the actions necessary to drive results and, and organizational outcomes. Because uh, we can talk a lot about culture and, and employee engagement and you know how do we fix this and manage multi-generational workforces and how do we build a great culture? Well, let's, you know, let's have happy hours every Wednesday and got to do the barbecue you know, once a quarter. It's like, that's not culture. That could be a part of it. But the, the culture has to really articulate specific behaviors necessary to achieve the desired outcome of the organization. Just like in the military or special operations, we have it's not perfect, as you know, by by any means, but we have pretty well-defined, clear-cut cultures with a vision that people emotionally connect to. Yeah. And that's why we're successful in the world of special operations. Harder to achieve in the business world. Uh, you know, my second company was at our peak, not a massive organization, but we were about 200 people across three offices, San Diego, Vegas, and New York. Uh, obviously, very strategic locations that we chose for our offices <laughs> just basically places we well, like to visit new york exactly. <laughs> right i was gonna say so new york sounded good san diego yeah that's but the vegas all right yeah, but, we, yeah. Didn't, we didn't get much done there but I, i'm kidding um <laughs> but i found new challenges in that and, and obviously many of the leadership and management uh, principles that we learn in the military don't perfectly translate the basic fundamentals do but they don't perfectly translate as it relates to how we interact with people and how we uh, empower and inspire different generations, younger generations, millennials. They need something different. We teach a lot of motivation theory in our executive leadership and organizational development programs. And a lot of what we dive into in other stages is understanding motivation theory. Uh, and it's actually relatively complex in the even more complex world of modern business. And so, uh, you know, learning how to better manage and engage younger generations uh, and you can't lead them the same way you do uh, in a SEAL platoon. Strangely, yeah. I found that I found that out the hard way. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not supposed to scream at people in front of everybody. And, can't give them a paintbrush. Yeah. Well, and you know, millennials don't respond well to waterboarding. I found that out uh, early on. So <laughs> HR made us get rid of the waterboarding station and all those things. But um, joking. Uh, not. But the yeah. <laughs> but, but long story short, I found a, I found a passion for the challenge of of building organizations and building cultures and integrating values and understanding how to engage the majority of your workforce to be aligned behind a very clear and concise vision. And I was like, wow, I would love to write about this. I would love to help other organizations do this as well. And so the first step was to get out and then write write Taking Point, you know, the first book, which is about leading through change. So. You know, relevant to pretty much any organization that just in this time of our modern 21st century business. Uh, the, the pace of change is fast. The, the workforce is different. The workplace is going to be largely different just after this year and the, uh, yeah. what we've been dealing with within COVID and how we think about our workforce and what we invest in and how much office space we really need and how we better use technology and digital transformation to uh, get what we need from our team. Uh, which is challenging because just engagement alone in an organization is challenging uh, in, in a non-forced virtual world. I mean, it's about 34%. And the data usually comes back pretty much the same across most um, research organizations. But, you know, 34% in a whole team is right. not, not a big number. When you think about the importance of engagement in achieving organizational goals, 
uh, when it's only about a 34% who are all in, they're going above and beyond, the rest is people are either actively or passively disengaged. Uh, the actively disengaged are the ones that are actually pushing against the organization. Uh, they're your, you know, the, the negative people, the naysayers. And oftentimes the problem with those folks is, and I found this out in, even in my own first two companies, is, you know, they, they're a bigger challenge than anyone else because oftentimes they have tenure, they have subject matter expertise, sometimes both. Therefore, yep. they, have a, they have a voice yep. more than, you know, okay, new guy over here has been here for three months. He's pretty negative, but nobody listens to him anyway. Right. Whereas the director of such and such department who's saying, you know, in the break room, you know, this, this vision and strategy that Brenton, you know, the team has at the senior level is never going to work or this project's going to fail. Those types of people obviously have a voice and can create toxicity and negativity. And that's, you know, a lot of the things we do within our developmental programs with our clients is, you know, breaking down silos, ensuring there's a, a alignment and those foundational fundamental elements in a high performing team that we skip right past usually because we're focused on growth and profitability and EBITDA and shareholder value and not getting yelled at in that board meeting because the P&L doesn't look the way the investors want it to look. So we deprioritize culture and really defining values and the expected behavioral norms that are going to drive longevity, scalability, engagement, performance and profitability. Yep. Because they're those soft side management strategies and tactics, which they're not. I don't even like that term because they have a direct correlation to profitability and scalability. We call it the, the service profit chain. We ask our clients, well, what, what drives profitability in your organization? And this is an actual formula. It's based on research. It's not ours. Uh, and people have all these different answers. And the number one answer is repeat customers, repeat clients, because they cost less. Uh, to generate new revenue from than going out and hunting new whales. And how do you get repeat customers? Well, happy clients because of great products, great services, a lot of engagement from the teams they interact with. And you only have highly engaged teams doing great work through great leadership. So it really all comes back to leadership and having that leadership at all levels mentality of extreme ownership and accountability and trust and discipline that we get from the military how can we replicate uh, the majority of those basic principles in building higher performing teams in business? Yeah. So when you talk about those types of things to me, the number one reason statistically out there in the private sector, especially because in the military, you don't have the option really to leave until your term of service is over. But <laughs> the, the number one reason is their leader, their manager. Uh, poor management is the number one reason. So, you know, you can talk about all the, the crazy, you know, cultural stuff and the, the soft, fuzzy, warm and fuzzy stuff that they HR does. But when you get down to it, if you've got toxic leaders or toxic managers that are out there creating a culture that you're trying to not have within your organization, or you're trying to find what the root cause is, you might want to first look at your managers and leaders instead of looking at your employees and whether you have the right employees. Right. Look at your leaders because... <laughs> It's, and no, it's it's a hundred percent true. The yeah. problem, as we all know and have experienced, is that oftentimes that toxicity is coming from right at the top. Oh yeah, we'll stay we'll stay away from executive level. Today, but <laughs> yes, no, no, no. But ex executive level, most definitely. Yeah. I mean, I I sat on uh, many executive teams, especially either as an employee or as a consultant, and watched these these people sit in a room, pontificate not work together across the table and divide. We watch Congress and everything in the same type of situation, but these happen in executive leadership rooms. Then I'd go to a, their office and sit down with them and talk about something. Next thing you know, they're blowing up about their peer. And then I hear them say that to subordinates in a right. staff meeting. 
And when you start creating that division, when you start creating that lack of communication, that collaboration across organizations, you know, uh, silo, you know, creating silos within the organization, you're going to create major problems that are going to be very, very difficult to break out and break sure. down. And even outside of maybe there's competing priorities or varying, vastly varying personalities at that executive level, oftentimes it just stems from a pure lack of alignment in either what the mission and vision are, the strategy, how we're going to get there. Uh, oftentimes there's wild amounts of disagreement on that. I've experienced that in, in my own uh, in my previous company, particularly, a lot of what you just described started happening and it became a toxic environment because there was a vast divide between my partner and I and how we were going to take the organization to the level that we wanted to. And when you have a, a, a such a wide discrepancy with the two most senior people, um, yeah. statistic, statistically and in my own research, it's not going to work forever. Uh, you'll you'll eventually plateau and or possibly shrink uh, if you don't overcome uh, those those differences. And the entire organization can see it. Uh, that also happens, you know, at the at the mid level too. I mean, it, it, I was reading an article the other day, you know, um, just doing some research for a client on the engagement uh, issues that they were having, and you know, this article was pointing to the fact that the organizations now that are really winning at at retaining great talent uh, focus on developing mid level managers, not just senior level managers, but the mid level managers, because to your point, people don't leave a job; they leave their boss, yep. and so you're talking about all those mid level managers from maybe different organizations called director up to VP, maybe even not even that high. Uh, they're the ones who have the direct impact on the levels of engagement for their team members and the level of connectivity those employees have on the unique subculture that that manager creates within their business unit division, what have you. Uh, Cause there's always going to be some type of subculture. The organization obviously wants to have a, 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 you know, clearly defined culture manifesto as you will, but there's always going to be, subcultures within an organization it's in any organization you know not not every seal platoon behaves the same way or has the same culture as the overarching organization uh and that's why developing those mid-level managers which is where we typically begin in an organization because some of our clients are you know, multi-billion dollar global organizations are obviously not working with the entire company we we like to start there in the middle uh and they because they have a really great opportunity to impact engagement retention culture and driving all those things together in a line fashion to help the organization achieve its goals. Yeah. And this does, it doesn't matter whether this is in the military or the civilian, what we're talking about, because we've seen it on both sides of it. Go ahead, Scott. I was, I was going to say, I, I don't think people put enough emphasis on the, the mid layer in terms of leadership because culture we know comes from the top down, but embedding a culture or changing a culture is done at the mid-level because that's where the most number of touch points are in terms of the volume yeah. within a business and if you can get that culture right and your leadership right at the mid-level then that's how you're going to quickly change develop embed a culture really embedded into a business because those are the guys who every day are having the conversations with the masses on the shop floor, the office floor, whatever it's going to be, and really start to embed that oh, vision yeah. where the company wants to go uh, and where it's being driven. But, you know, you, you bang on with your point about the the toxicity in many businesses coming from the very top level and that ability to not explain anything so people don't understand why they're doing something and you right. know that you will do it because I, i'm telling you to and a lot of people think that's what the military is 
you know, yeah. you just get barked at and, and told this is what you've got to do and go and do it. And it, the, the military is very far from that, I think, now in terms of the modern military. And totally. they, they're really looking for people who can think for themselves and take uh, an overarching plan and then develop that down into each layer, you know, whether it be um, platoon or, or troop commander, troop sergeant, section leaders, yep. uh, team leaders, and just really breaking that down into even f- fire teams, into pairs eventually and developing and everybody playing your part in that overarching mission. And, um, you know, Jocko Willing talks about commander's intent and things like that. Yep. And, People don't give that enough and just say, this is what we want to achieve and this is the reason why we want to achieve that. It'll do this for the balance book. It'll do this for product development, whatever it might be. And this is and your role explain- to make that happen too. You know, exactly. po- po- yeah. Share with them how that's how they need to have a role in that or what they need to do to help that be uh, achievable. You know, because exactly. that's another thing I don't think leaders are doing enough is uh, helping them understand their role in the bigger picture. It's vision, isn't it? Yeah. isn't it? Explaining the vision of what we need to achieve as a team, as a department, as a business, as a whole. Yeah. And, you know, I see so many businesses that don't have a business strategy or a business vision. They're just, we're here to make money. Well, <laughs> that, that, that's just going to happen. It's just, we were, stop lottery tickets. A couple of things on those two points. I was laughing because I literally just had this conversation with a new client of ours out of Texas. And we, you know, a lot of the organizations we work with, yeah, they have their vision, they have their mission statement, maybe they have core values. They were written by maybe one or two founders 30 years ago. Nobody in the organization could articulate them at all. Um, Even though they have the badge, probably the yeah, yeah, and and they have it on the posters on the wall, but nobody knows it. Yeah, 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 nobody knows what that is. They don't really pay attention. (laughs) And to your point about articulating the vision, that has to be done over and over and over, not in the company-wide meeting once a quarter. We put it in the newsletter. Did nobody, nobody read the newsletter? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, so we, we have, I talk about that in the book, how you have these, you can have this multiplying, this, the multiplying force of communication by evangelizing all those middle managers and what I call those change evangelists and your highly engaged employees to really get out there with the message of the vision and helping their people understand exactly how their day-to-day tasks, duties, responsibilities, to your point earlier, drive mission success. Even the most mundane, non-sexy parts of the job, like, Picking up brass at the shooting range. That ain't sexy, but it's part of my mission to be to, uh, you know, rid the world of terror and purge the world of evil. <laughs> it's boring. It sucks. And based on all the Up technology, the we had to, yeah. yeah, see, I just went off on a I went off on a I blacked out there. Why do we still have why do we still have to pick up our own brass? It's just anyway. Um, but we uh, we we often make that assumption. We as leaders, even at the top, that our team members clearly know the vision because we have it clear up in here. But even yeah. we've done the research, you go one layer below, it's a significant percentage of misalignment on what that vision is. You go two layers below, it jumps like another 40% down. And then you go below that, it's like one or 2% could articulate what that vision and strategy is. Scary, really is. scary. I mean, I don't know how businesses right. survive with that when you think about that. Right. And it's such common sense and it's information, Brent, that's publicized and it's out there that if you're even... Uh, a you know marginal manager or leader you should know what we're talking about right now this is right. common sense right. yet it doesn't happen yeah well many and many organizations too we, we asked i was i was down in san antonio a couple weeks ago right before they got hit with COVID again so just barely missed that but <laughs> so i got out right before the storm hit but you know we were sitting with one of their i would just call him a high potential high potential leader of the organization yeah. they're a restaurant restaurant group tons of tenure 
tenure, not always a good thing. Uh, but this kid had been with the organization since he was 16 as a busboy at the restaurant. And now he's a regional manager. I mean, you know, he looks like he's like 25. But yeah. He's older than that, but he's got a vast amount of experience. Obviously, an up, up-and-comer continuing in the organization. But we asked him one of the questions. We were like, what do you know, and what his manager was sitting right there, one of the senior senior presidents of the organization. He's like, what? He's like, why are we? Uh, you know, why are we here? What's our purpose as an organization? What would you say it is? And he kind of had to think about it because it's not always an easy question to answer. He said, "We're here to make money." And we looked at each other. We're like, because we knew we, we he would probably say that because that's what the founders and the it's a family owned business, yeah. so that's a whole nother complexity. Oh yeah, that's what they want everybody to think and behave as if we are here to make money. Period. Hit the number, hit the sales number. That's it. And we've worked with large global organizations where that is their culture. They're sales driven. Make the number. Do whatever you can to make the number. Period. The end. But when we started working with them, we realized we'll help you guys exceed that number. By focusing on the behavioral things, not mm. sell, 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 get out there, beat the street. Uh, it's a medical device technology company, so very you know, sales-driven. So they have all their different divisions all over the world, and where people are out there literally beating the street, talking to doctors, physicians, things like that. But what we drilled down into was the behavioral side of enhancing mid-level management's ability to engage those sales team members, because we started with their global sales team. And what we found, this is a simple data point, but a, but a very interesting one is the two people of their, uh, and their, there was a participant group of 20 in a 12-month leadership development program. The two regional sales leaders that in- improved the most through their follow-up 360s, their psychometric assessments, their peer evaluations, manager evaluations, the two people who improved the most, their regions went from third and fourth in sales globally to first and second hmm. in sales globally. So again, taking all of this behavioral fluffy nonsense back to your P&L is critical, and it does hit your P&L. It's maybe not be a line item, but you can see the performance when it comes to sales or revenue growth or profitability or the retention of your employees and the cost savings that are associated with that. So um, oftentimes the most well-intentioned leaders today, they understand all this stuff. They listen to these podcasts. They're like, yeah, we got it. We're, we're on top of this kind of stuff. But it's 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 handled in a very siloed, you know, uh, unintentional and uh, inconsistent fashion. I think you can kind of transform an organization to higher levels of performance by bringing in a Navy SEAL keynote speaker or some nonsense <laughs> like that or uh, you know, or have them do an online workshop or something. But it has to be part of the culture. It has to be a learning culture where leadership is part of their growth strategy, not right. just something they talk about, but and understanding that difference between leadership and management. So let's take it's that. It's difficult, isn't it, from, sorry, Robert, That's right. from a consultancy point of view, Brent, if the businesses that get it and understand that by changing culture can directly affect your profit and loss are the ones who are engaged in the softer skills anyway. The ones who actually need it the most are the ones who, when they see a consultancy firm, think, I don't need that shit. I know everything. I can do this myself. We'll just get some hanging their cat posters and we'll put them up in the canteen and everything all over it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that the people who get it are the ones who don't actually need it that much, but they're engaged with it and they know, yeah, bring somebody in. We can get these people, you know, an extra 1% out of them because they're already nearly there. But the ones who are, are desperate and businesses are really struggling and they just think we can do it ourselves and you know Gordon Ramsay makes a, a very good TV program out of that exact mentality yeah. where he goes to restaurants in um, in dire straits and they think they know everything 
and he proves them wrong and it makes great TV viewing. But that's what the business world is like every single day. The guys who are going under, the ones who really should be holding their hands up and saying, I need to change. Somebody help me do that. And they just miss a massive opportunity. And there's so many businesses that could be saved through having a, a, a culture change and a mindset change. And well, I, I saw a client. I saw a client though, Scott, that uh, recently they they felt like they had everything going well because all of the data showed that. I mean, the numbers were looking good. Right. You know, financials, everything was great. You know, um, you got uh, the board is happy. Looks like employees are relatively happy as well. But then all of a sudden, a massive event hit them, and when it did, all of a sudden things were exposed. And right. so when that happened, that's when they thought, well, we thought things were good, but it's a good thing we got woke up now because, wow, had we continued down this path, the stuff that we weren't paying attention to would have came up and bit us big time. And, and that's, I, yeah. you know, that's a big thing. I, I, was, I, was, I was just going to make that exact point because the, the last chapter in my first book is about uh, resili- organizational resilience principles. And so we, you know, when things are you know rosy and there's clearly no threats on the horizon the board's happy employees are relatively happy as happy as they're going to be but they're performing enough right. we're making the number we're growing nothing could possibly go wrong we're just going to continue this hockey stick growth and you know sell the organization for buku bucks well you know as we know you know leading any organization when times are great is easy but when let's say hypothetically i don't know a global pandemic hits or <laughs> nationwide rioting or you know <laughs> Bad things come in threes, right? So what's the other one? Um, the locust. And, yeah, the locust, <laughs> an, an act of God, whatever. And and that's when things fall apart. I, I love the way you said that things are exposed. Or we've been looking at the wrong data. Or we've been completely missing this yep. glaring opportunity or threat that's been staring us in the face because we're so focused on how awesome we are. Yeah. Uh, and, and how happy everybody is because we're all making money and we're doing great things and our customers are thrilled. Uh, and then things fall apart when, you know, the, you know, what hits the fan and, um, and oftentimes businesses don't survive because they have no contingency plans, no resilience principles or, or, or initiatives that are going to create a healthy level of redundancy or, or an ability to keep employees engaged or navigate that significant financial loss because they haven't been really, Focusing on you know their, the fiscal side of their responsibility because the top line looks so good, so we don't need to worry about profitability as much or whatever those reasons are. Um, and it's you were seeing it this year uh, in organizations who go from the top of their industry to bankrupt. Yep, quick. And so now yeah, this is quickly, yeah. this is a great pivot actually opportunity to talk about something that you recently posted about or Ticking Point Leadership did and that's about leading through adversity because I think right now whether you're in the military and you've had people because of the pandemic in a situation where it's difficult to try to manage them um, if there's been some type of you know uh, work at home situation or something like that or you're in the private sector and you're going through some of these same challenges you know understanding how to lead through adversity something that you've experienced or we've all experienced within the military is so critical and so important so you recently published uh i think it was around 10 different things that you can focus Mm -hmm. on or that you should kind of look at so i'll kind of go through the first one embrace reality right uh it kind of kind of expands about what we were just talking about i mean oftentimes when when any organization or team hits an unforeseen obstacle which it's pretty much all of us eventually at some point or multiple touch points during the life cycle of that team or organization. Uh, we oftentimes don't 
quickly enough uh, embrace the reality of our current situation, or we engage in, uh, you know, causal analysis and deep, you know, I believe heavily in root cause analysis, but there's a difference between root cause analysis, developing an action plan and executing, as opposed to dwelling on your current situation. Why us? Why now? Why me? Things are terrible. What are we going to do? Uh, and again, we even see senior leaders fall into that behavioral, you know, pitfall uh, because they haven't really oftentimes been faced with true adversity, maybe in their career, maybe not even in their life. So uh, we as behaviors, you know, we get the behaviors we tolerate in an organization. And if it's me as a senior person, not embracing the reality of the current situation, nobody else is either. Or it'll be even worse because I don't and they do. <laughs> so it even seems worse because the senior leader isn't thinking about things in the right context, doesn't have the right perspective on, okay, this is our reality. Now we got to create an action plan. We got to pivot. We got to execute now. Not tomorrow, not after we finish crying and sobbing about how bad the situation is, but right now. And those organizations that are resilient come out of these situations often stronger than ever before because they learned how to navigate that obstacle or those um, adverse situations as opposed to the others that struggle and sometimes fail. So. I think this pandemic will will be a huge advantage for a lot of businesses because they've been put into that that corner and had the fight to make some yeah. changes and they'll come out the back end of this adversity and I, I talk about in the UK in a group I run about uh, growth through adversity and how th these tough times have made people change their actions or, or change their um, strategies or, or their product or their service and really reach into new markets and expand yeah. the capability and once everything starts the world starts turning again and everything starts coming back to whatever the new normal is going to be then they're already in new markets they've been delivering a product or a service throughout the entire um, period when a lot of companies were just shrinking in internally and trying to just stay afloat and actually yeah. once everything starts picking back up again and people start spending money again they're already out in front by a long margin and the growth that's going to come out the back end of this for some businesses i think will be phenomenal i i, I couldn't agree more i think there will be many organizations within their specific you know, sector or industry that are going to gain significant market share uh, as we come out of this because a lot of their competitors will either have started to fail or fallen so far so far behind that it's unrecoverable or they'll stay at that smaller level. Whereas other organizations, just, just like you know, our company, I mean, we're not, look at where I am. I'm not in a hotel getting ready to go do a keynote presentation. I'm at home. Thankfully, all three of our kids are uh, with mom running errands. <laughs> I said, hey, I, gotta, I got this thing I got to do, so everybody get out of here. So, so thank you. Thank you. Um, you haven't seen the bill yet, Brent, when they come back. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh wow! It took the wind out of took the wind out of my sails. But my point is that, that you know we've had to do some uh, obviously make some significant changes in how we spend our time as a team. Uh, and a lot of the times, you know, that we can't be spending time on this because it's just not an opportunity, or the sales pipeline has shriveled a little bit, uh, or or other programs are about to kick off with large clients have been postponed till. Who knows when? So you spend more time on marketing or creating great content or continue to develop that sales funnel. So for when 
things, you know, like you said, get back to whatever they're going to get back to, you've already created that funnel, uh, funnel through content, funnel through relationships, uh, funnel through, uh, you know, whatever activities you're doing to keep your brand relevant, innovative, creative, possibly, like you said, even, even shifting into um, new revenue streams, as long as they're not something wildly outside of what the organization is meant to do so that it's successful. But those are the organizations that are going to be, that are going to succeed on the other end of this where, while others will fall way behind. Yeah. When, you know, money's tight and everything, the people who usually suffer or the things that usually suffer, unfortunately, are the personnel, the employees. And so at this time frame right here, where we could possibly be taking some time to invest in our people and allow them to get training that otherwise might be very difficult under the schedule and rigor of, you know, the workday and stuff, because we always say, man, we'd love to be able to train our force. But unfortunately, you know, we got to keep the lights on. We got to keep moving. Well, this is an opportunity really to take a breath. But yet, it's also difficult to manage those those dollars and where they go. Yeah, yeah. well, it is because you know th- there it is that conundrum. Well, it's like great we have the time to develop our team, but we have no resources to do so, <laughs> or we need to stay. You know, we need to you know focus on cash conservation, not yep. another revenue generating initiative that will have a desired return on investment further down the road. Like right now, with it with immediate action, we need to focus on conserving cash. You know, making payroll. I mean, one of the first things I did was cut my salary down to zero uh, for, for a while, for a few months, because we didn't want to have to do layoffs. And, yeah. and we didn't, and we haven't. Um, and because uh, we're also, like everyone else, trying to find new... It's easier for us because this is kind of our wheelhouse, and we teach it, we talk about it, we research it, we write about it, uh, and the whole team's fully engaged and loves what we do. But we've had our own challenges of making sure we got to okay, we got to figure out, you know, do we increase our level of communication now that we're doing Zoom calls twice a week instead of once a week, or how do we make sure we keep people active and energized and not feeling that battle fatigue because there's not as much to do. There's plenty to do, just not the same stuff. Right. So I want to go down through a few of these because I felt like there was a couple that might, you know, we could maybe couple together, know the facts, which I love because being more of a data driven person and understanding that data can be manipulated as well to um, get to whatever your end game is, but kind of understand the facts. Don't make knee jerk uh, decisions based on or, you know, that data or what you're hearing. And then also have an 80% plan. So you don't have to have it all figured out. But just basically have a stinking plan here coming out of it of something that you're going to do to make things better. Right. The obviously, I've, you know, I've, I've followed the philosophy of being as data driven as possible as well within the confines of understanding the right data at the right time for the right purposes. Um, but, yeah, knowing those facts, knowing what, we, what resources do we have at our disposal? What are the threats? What are the blockages? And that data is going to help you develop that 80 percent plan. Now, why do we call it an 80% plan? Well, because there's no such thing as a 100% plan. Yeah. And all the, all the time you spend trying to create that 100% plan, everything's changed by the time you have what you think is a 100% plan. Same thing, obviously, I mean, we get that really from the military because, you know, I remember my first combat deployment, we were the first SEAL task unit uh, in Iraq in 03, running capture or kill missions. And the op tempo was insanely high. We were doing sometimes two or three uh, hits a night, target hits. And uh, But regardless, we planned, we rehearsed, we debriefed religiously, every single op. Sometimes it was a formal debrief where we're documenting lessons learned that are going to after action re- reports, intel reports. Sometimes it's a quick down and dirty debrief and the helicopter on the way to the next target, then we'll do a more formal one later. Right. Um, and that's another thing that organizations don't do that well, is one, they don't plan all that well. I know that might seem strange. Well, this organization's worth $2 billion. What do you mean they don't plan well? Clearly they do. Well, 
maybe in a large scale, long term uh, strategic perspective. But when you get down to the micro level or various projects or how a division is going to enhance the customer experience or whatever strategic imperatives an organization or team is trying to achieve, they either spend too much time trying to plan because they don't know how to do it. Uh, rapidly and, and in an effective manner, or they just don't do it at all, or they have these planning sessions and there's no accountabilities. Yep. So we teach that in, in, in its simplest form, an 80% plan is a clear and concise objective. So either an OKR or an objective statement that's kind of like a smart goal so that everybody knows it, they emotionally connect to it, they get excited about it, and they understand what it means. So you, down to the exact words and phrases you use in that objective statement. Right. So we all know this is where we're headed, this is how we're going to get there. Then you identify the threats and blockages that stand in your way. You identify the resources you need to achieve that objective. You apply any potential lessons learned from anybody on the team or planning committee who is planning this project or initiative. Hey, who's done this before? Maybe it was at your previous job. Maybe it's a similar project we tried last year that failed or succeeded. Yeah. Let's, let's apply those lessons learned to see, do we need to tweak our list of threats or our resource needs appropriate? And then you have, you know, let's say it's a 50% plan at that point, and then you want to um, create your actions. So your what, your who, and most importantly, your when, the time-bound nature of that uh, important plan. So you've got this list of to-dos, you've got this list of to-dos, I have my list, here's exactly what I'm going to do based on these resources I need, and here's the due date that I'm going to hold myself accountable. I don't necessarily have to be responsible for doing all that work, but I am the one who's accountable and has mm. ownership over that deliverable based on the action plan. Then you have about a 65% plan. And then the best part about these plans, and we get this from the military as well, and organizations almost never do this, is we make sure to red team the plan. Poke holes in it. Not you, who planned it, but somebody else who has an understanding of what your mission is, what you're trying to achieve. Maybe they're somewhat closely associated. Uh, some peers or colleagues outside of the actual planning group or task force that's assigned to this, let's call it a project, uh, who can come in and you can present the plan to them in its current form. And they are basically allowed to, in a respectful way, poke holes in it. And we follow a very specific process. All they can say is, have you considered this? Have you considered this? Your only response as the team leader is thank you. And obviously you take, it's not a debate. It's why it only should take five to 10 minutes. You're just gathering intel. And whatever nuggets of good information you get, you have someone write it down. You go back and apply those in your contingencies to the plan. Then you have your 80% plan. So that can obviously be on a macro level, but also more, more importantly right now, when organizations are trying to pivot on this current battlefield, they need new plans associated with new revenue streams or how to manage their financial situation or who's going to apply for the PPP loan or who's doing all this stuff. We need a plan. Yep. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be 80 pages, one page. And there have to be accountabilities for every single person associated with it. Yeah. And you talked about this earlier about a couple of these things. Control what you can, ignore what you can't. You mentioned that. And then communication, the importance of everything you just described and, you know, trying to explain what's going on to your subordinates or the people around you. And in some cases, even your peers, so that everybody understands what, you know, why we're we're now dancing to this drumbeat, why we're moving along in this direction. What's the end game? What's the goal? And uh, especially if you're having to make a full-blown pivot, you know, like Scott's saying, you know, some organizations, the way they're going to survive is they thought outside of the box of what they normally wouldn't do that maybe was uncomfortable, but they've now switched to do something that they can now use as a new growth item when the old one starts coming back online again, that's going to even make them better. So, you know, um, that goes along with being disciplined and innovative, where I think that a lot of organizations just aren't being that innovative right now. 
But yeah, and now, now for many, and we kind of talked about this before, this is forcing for those organizations that are resilient and, and will thrive in this current time, uh, innovation is being forced upon them and they're acting up and they're acting on it through use of technology, digital transformation, possibly alternative revenue streams, or like us and many others, tackling those new initiatives that have been on the side burner for two years because we don't have time. Yep. Well, maybe now do. is the time to tackle those things. And once we come out of the other end of this, whenever that is, you have that new revenue stream or that new offering or that new value proposition or that new piece of technology in place, ready to go. So take advantage of the time that you do have. Again, it's, it's you know, like we say in the SEAL teams and kind of a military saying is we say find work. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if your list of to-dos for the day you know, at the command are done, well, go find other work. Go ask your peers, hey, I know you're working on this. Is there anything I can do to help you? You're not just knocking off at four o'clock because your list of dues are done. You find work no matter where you are. So it's the same mindset in organizations right now. Well, we're, you know, you got to go find work. Uh, don't just do less because you perceive there's less to do. There's always something to do. Yeah. You put on there also build trust and accountability. And I think as any leader, any manager, that's like so critical in just building teams one-on-one. Yeah, it, it's I write about this in, the, in Taking Point in the chapter two and three, because I refer to trust and accountability as the two most important culture pillars for high-performing teams. Uh, and that's not just my belief. I mean, it's, there's tons of research uh, out there that shows that uh, a culture of accountability and a culture that fosters trust and psychological safety and clear communication, they, again, retain employees, they have higher levels of morale, they are more profitable, they grow faster, and most importantly, they navigate change and adversity better than similar organizations uh, that lack in those areas when it comes to their culture and the expected behaviors that they have. That's why it's best to build those things and ingrain them in your culture through consistency, not now when the shit's hitting the fan, but before the shit hits the fan. So you already have that strong culture of trust. If you're like, all right, we can band together. I'm going to hold myself to a high standard. We all trust each other. Here's where we're headed now. Everybody execute. When yeah. you don't have that, it's just rampant fear, confusion, trepidation, because that's never been part of uh, the behavioral expectations in the organization. Yep. The last thing you said was find the silver lining, which to me means, you know, there's got to be some positivity here. Everything can't be negative and doom and gloom that's going on right now, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was. it's so funny you said that because I was looking up, uh, you know, we were having a discussion with the team about different social media strategies, and I was looking up unmotivational quotes. There's a lot of hilarious unmotivational quotes. Well, the memes today are crazy. So. I, oh, they're just hysterical. <laughs> I, I posted one yesterday on my Instagram. Uh, that said, uh, you know, uh, the first step, uh, the first step in failure is trying. So why bother? <laughs> and so I found one that said, to your point about the silver lining, said, you know, everybody tries to look for the silver lining, but they usually get electrocuted, the cloud, but they usually get electrocuted while they're looking for it. Um, <laughs> and, but really, it, it, yeah, it does. It comes back to, it comes back to mindset. We can sit around, yeah. woe is me. Oh my God, our 2020 our 2020 plan just got shot to shit. Well, yeah, say you and everybody else. Yeah. There's always someone who has it worse too, whether you're talking about an individual or an organization. I mean, I've got, you know, friends and colleagues who aren't only just losing their businesses, but they also have brain cancer and one of their kids are in prison. I mean, it's like, get some real perspective. Yep. It's somebody's always going to have it worse. Another team or organization is always going to have it worse. Again, stay in your three foot world, focus on what you can control and execute on those things while keeping the team together and aligned in an environment of trust. Uh, and you'll be better off for it. There's no other alternative. If you think about it in that way, 
by staying positive and you know every day you turn the news on and this is bad and that's bad well if it's not under my immediate sphere of influence i'm going to maintain focus on the initiatives that we set based on that 80 percent plan and we'll course correct if we need to yeah i'm going to run down through these real quick again for anybody who wants to take notes so leading through adversity is embrace the reality know the facts avoid knee-jerk decisions have an 80 percent plan control what you can ignore what you can't communicate be disciplined and innovative build trust and accountability and find the silver lining i think it's a really good uh, recipe there for success is especially when you're going through a, a real times of adversity like these right now and this is a book applicable whether you're in the service or not and a lot of guys i know that dm me on occasion and said well you know when you're in the military you don't have a whole lot of control yeah you can and again, it goes back to control what you can. You control a team. You control a squad. Yeah. You control a platoon. And you control their morale right now and everything that's yeah. going on. And everything you just said applies even within that little small sphere of influence. I think sometimes oh, yeah. they forget that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, um, you mentioned your book. So I want to give you an opportunity to give the title out there of the two books that you have so that people can find it and then how they can find and learn more about Taking Point Leadership and some of the things that you've got going on, especially online right now. Uh, sure. The first book um, uh, was a bestseller, the number one release in um, uh, change management, business structural adjustment uh, titled Taking Point. Uh, it's about leading through change, and a lot of the principles in the book are directly aligned with the majority of the conversation we had today. Uh, the new book, uh, which I just finished my final edits on, which is always kind of a weird thing because uh, writing and putting out something like this is a very uh, emotive, creational, uh, uh, emotional, creative experience. So once you're told you can't touch it anymore, it's a little scary. <laughs> you go back and read it like, oh, I, I would. Why did I say it like that? <laughs> Damn it. It's too late. Um, uh, it's uh, It was a fun project and unfortunately very timely. It's a book about resilience. So the first book was about organizational transformation. This is a book about personal transformation and developing resilience, mental toughness, expanding your comfort zone Great. and doing all of those elements to find ways to navigate adversity and live a more fulfilling purpose-driven life. So finding that silver lining, finding uh, purpose in your suffering, you know, channeling pain into uh, a pathway and useful energy force to achieve um, lofty goals or just overcome the inevitable challenges, whether it's divorce or illness of the loss of your small business or uh, any other types of life's many obstacles that we're hit with from the day we're born to the day we go over the great divide. And it's titled Embrace the Suck. So I'm sure you're familiar with that terminology. And the subtitle is A Navy Seal's Way uh, to an Extraordinary Life. And uh, it's got a gut punch forward from David Goggins. Uh, he and I were, you know, classmates and teammates. So uh, I convinced him over about a year period to do the forward. <laughs> but, it, but it worked. <laughs> a lot of a lot of begging and crying was involved, and a lot of guilt trips and things like that. But ultimately, it came to fruition. Uh, uh, that's awesome. Really, so when is that one coming out? That one's coming out December twenty second. You can buy ahead now, or so you can. Yeah, you can pre order now on right. Amazon. So if you just look up Amazon, embrace the suck, Brink Gleason, um, and uh, it's going to be right after the election. So at least half the country is <laughs> going to be pissed off, uh, and every, and everyone will have had a shitty year. So it's guaranteed to fly off the shelves. It's <laughs> uh, awesome. We so didn't, we didn't we didn't strategically position it that there would be a global pandemic, but thank <laughs> thank the Lord there was. <laughs> And taking point leadership. 
Uh, yeah, it's takingpointleadership.com. So uh, we have a blog and a lot of references to our Forbes leadership column as well. Um, video content and obviously details around our, our services and, and things like that and other case studies. So. Can anybody sign up? In other words, do, do I have to be part of an organization in order to come get your training or is it something that I could do as an individual? Uh, it's both. So we do executive coaching. Okay. Uh, it's 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 different. It's usually our executive coaching offerings are aligned with a larger organizational program, but we do do one-off uh, executive coaching. Uh, they're pretty formal programs, usually six to nine months, where we do integrate a lot of the learning modules and 360s and assessments and action plans for development, uh, similar to what we do with a larger group, but we do it with uh, individuals as well. Yeah. I'm going to have to have you back on again, Brent, because there are so many good things that you've put out through your book that um and especially now we can talk more about the second book and some of the things that are more yeah. you know I'm thinking, personal. I'm thinking mid mid December. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be perfect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that'd be awesome. And cuz I think that there are a lot of great things that we still didn't even get a chance to talk about. I just decided to pick this one with all the things that are going on and especially with leaders now struggling perhaps with some of the challenges that they're facing yeah. that they've never had to face before, much like those leaders who have always served post 9/11 you know, and now going back to maybe some of the garrison pre 9-11 management styles and things and challenges that you end up having to deal with, like, you know, right. you pick up all the paper that's out there on the field um, that's not, you know, growing or things that don't move or whatever and things that just don't make sense sometimes. And, and you're having to struggle with trying to explain to people why it is that you're having to do those things as a manager, or as a leader. And, and all of these things are applicable. So we'll definitely have you on. We'll try to maybe a couple of times, if nothing else, to try to pick a couple of additional topics that we can get there. But uh, really looking forward to hearing more about that book. And I think it would be good to, to have it during that time frame. And hopefully we'll be on the outside of this whole pandemic rather than hitting phase maybe. two. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> be brutal, or, man. Or we'll just be more effectively managing our current environment. <laughs> yeah. You may, you may have to change the title even, uh, you know, how to, sh how to manage the pandemic or, you know, something that, you know, sells, you know, and that, uh, it, with that regard to the pandemic, cause people are going to be searching for something. What's next? Well, it's, 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 it's funny real quick. I did actually in, in my final edits, I did go back in the introduction and in certain places in the book, when I'm talking about different sort of adverse uh, situations we find ourselves in, I did have the opportunity to go back in and, and mention, you know, the pandemic Brilliant. and some, some of those challenges. So it, um, I do make some references to it, which is, which is excellent because I think we're probably, you know, likely headed towards something, you know, in the, the, uh, win next winter phase, at least that's, if you listen to the, all the talking heads, that's what they're saying anyway. Well, just the, regardless of what happens with the, the spikes in cases, just the general ripple effect of this we're going to feel Absolutely. for years. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to most the, of anything yeah. is that people, the new norm, as Scott mentioned it, you know, we're going to have to adjust to that. Not only that, but it's almost like having an earthquake and then you get the, um, the tsunami that comes afterwards. So there's a, <laughs> hopefully, you know, there's not, but I mean, there's... I like the, your positive outlook. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to show the silver lining here, Brent. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> for your book, that is that for your book. Right. Yes. So, Brent, thanks so much for joining us on the show, man. I really appreciate Thank it. You no, I had a blast. I really appreciate it. It was an honor to spend some time with you guys, and look forward to the next time.